Guys, welcome to Bono Stuff, episode 55, the big five-five. I'm super excited for you to listen to this one. David Bidler of Physiology First, Breathe to Perform, and The Distance Project up in Maine. Uh, I'm really excited about the projects these guys have going on that I'm going to get to participate in. Uh, I'm super excited to bring the Breathe to Perform ice bath kind of challenge that that we talk about a little bit here um and we've we've connected with after recording this episode so i'm bringing that to to colorado um super exciting stuff i i mean this is why i got into podcasting to connect with folks have these deep conversations that open up these these concepts and when you align with somebody like this uh, that i just feel like david and i align really well about how we believe the future of fitness and healthcare and human health just need to kind of kind of go the direction that we need to go. And Physiology First is the perfect uh, name. Uh, I just love the title. As we got to talking, I just I just lit up. I think you can hear it in the episode. I'm trying to convey that here in the introduction, and and I'm just really excited for you guys to listen. So if you care at all about and and, and he focuses on uh, working with teenagers out in Maine. So if you have a kid. Who's, who's going into those teenage years. These are the kind of things that I think they all need to start to work on. Um, some really cool stuff. Again, I, I, I don't want to keep dragging out this intro. I just want to get to the, the meat of this interview and, uh, and hope you guys enjoy. If you uh, really liked it, got some value out of it, make sure you share it, subscribe, uh, leave a comment, rating, review, let us know how we can do better, all that good stuff. I hope it gets you 1% better. Without further ado, enjoy David Bidler. I'm gonna beatbox. I'm working on my. I gotta get like a little jingle for Bono's this and Bono's that, but Bono's Jack because Bo can't rap. I'm not gonna do the rest because I don't know. Again, don't want to get sued. Don't want to get sued. So here we are, guys. Bono stuff. I actually don't know what number this is. I think we're in the 50s. You might be 60. I don't know. I don't know. We'll, we'll catch up later on what number this is. But we have David Bidler here, and you are in New Jersey. Yes. We're in Maine, from New Jersey here oh, in Maine. Oh, Maine, yes. Yeah. I did know that. I did know that. You're in Maine. I was trying to uh, geotag because I reposted your thing earlier, mm. and I should have tagged it from Maine, but I did not do that, so I, I, I need to go fix that. So, yes, up in the great state of Maine, having some lobsters. Yes. Not no too lobsters. much lobsters, but we are in the great state of Maine. And no lobsters. A lot, a lot different from New Jersey. Yeah, very different. So I'm going to read off your bio here, get everyone acquainted with who you are. Um, I'll just say I know you uh, through Physiology First and Distance Project on like Instagram, and that's how we kind of connected. And so uh, David Bidler is the president of Physiology First, a nonprofit organization that provides 21st century mental health education to students and the larger community that supports them. Through a new online learning platform, Physiology First University, the organization shares brain and body-based education and 21st century life skills while working to create a model for mentally healthy technology. I love every word of that. So let's we're jump into it. it. Brother. I'm so honored to be here and grateful to you for the platform, my friend. Yeah, dude. We're going to turn that off so, again, we don't get sued um, or copyright claimed uh, as YouTube likes to do. But yeah, man, uh, catch us up. Um, we'll, we'll jump right into it. What What is physiology first? What's the mission? What's the What should we know about it? Well, first off, I can't thank you enough for the chance to talk. I've watched your work for years, and it's really cool to be able to use technology to connect human to human face-to-face. -face. And uh, it's a lot different than just letting technology use us all day long. So I love these yes. opportunities, and I love to put a, 
of human connection to somebody that I've seen on the gram. So thank you so much <laughs> for the chance here. I appreciate it. Yeah, no, my pleasure to have you here again. Uh, I, you're one of the people that are like, I'm, 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 as I'm kind of building this thing, mm. I'm like, do I reach out to, to the, you know, what, what tier of superstar can I reach out to? You know, you're in that 5,000 follower tier, I guess. So I'm like, I isn't it, isn't that an amazing thing? I mean, we, we're going to probably dive into that from like a, um, how does tech impact mental health? Where are we in the world of understanding technology and understanding ourselves in a technological environment? What are the uh, what what does the data show in terms of youth mental health as technology as technologies accelerate? And what does the future hold there? Like, what are we expecting to happen from a standpoint of technological acceleration? Do we think we're going to see a net improvement in mental health among adults and kids? And how proactive can we be about building the future and not just sitting back in the passenger seat while the thing? Uh, you know, goes off the rails or gets a lot more optimistic, positive and awesome. Yeah, yeah, there's definitely a lot. And we talked about a little before the call. And I think this is a, a nice segue kind of with the work you're doing and, and things like that, that uh, the this is the first generation of children that is has a shorter life expectancy than the previous generation. And that's the first time in history that's ever happened. So, you know, it's, it's acknowledging that problem and it's uh, what can we do about it, right? So that, and that, and it seems like you guys are kind of starting to come up with some solutions and you're one of the few folks out there with that focus that I've seen on, on these concepts. So yeah, tell us how, how we can, uh, or, or maybe tell us a little more about the, 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 the work you're doing in Maine with the, the, the gym and the targeting that you're doing there. So right now I'm sitting at Physiology First University. This is the first physical campus that we built for brain and body based learning and for 21st century skills for youth and for the community that supports them. It's attached to our gym, the distance project that we've run for years. And it's been amazing to meld these two things and to see young people sitting, having a cup of coffee, connecting with each other, chilling out, being um, in proximity to a lot of books around neuroscience, around human physiology, around human performance, around technology, having that stuff like readily available and culturally relevant. It's kind of a, it's a fun place to hang out. And then to be able yeah. to go to the gym and actually build the mental and physical fitness skills and to be able to live the process of working to upgrade your mind and body on purpose with other people. Yeah, man. I mean, I wish, I wish, I mean, I, again, I think I had the football team in high mm. school, you know, and, and that was kind of my, uh, lucky to have such a good group of guys that we still keep in touch 20 something years later. We have a monthly catch up call with our Brooklyn tech football fellas. Um, and, and yeah, I'm grateful for that. And, and it sounds like that's the kind of thing. And, and we were nerds, so we did, you know, it wasn't the usual kind of, I guess, uh, whatever we all did have. Some of us had Buddhist books that we're exploring and in, in high school and <laughs> you know it's a beautiful thing because you're able to exchange information in a way that wasn't boxed in by computer algorithms mm -hmm. you could meet people who didn't believe the same thing that you believed somebody can bring in a new idea from out of nowhere and you'd have to confront contend with that and i think in the past year we've watched i mean during a quarantine so many people get boxed into ideological rabbit holes we've watched mm -hmm. how technologically can both technologically technology can both unite and um, divide. divide, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, that, and that if we're going to have a 21st century conversation about mental health, it has to incorporate technology and it has to be a skill-based up-to-date conversation. So when we first started doing this work, you know, my background is in human performance and that comes from the lens of training people for extreme endurance sports. And when you're looking at what it takes to get a person physiologically ready, just put the mental aside for a minute, physiologically ready to go into extreme environments for anywhere from a marathon to 50 miles to three consecutive marathons to 100 miles plus, you're looking at the meat and bones of stress physiology. You're understanding the biology of this human animal. 
and what stress does to, to physiology. And you're hopefully preparing them with a skill set to manage their body under extreme stress and perform in, in sometimes life or death situations, depending on how rugged the terrain, but certainly high performance situations. And we got really interested um, as we began to build out programs for extreme endurance athletes. I feel like you can't be a 21st century coach and not take into account the human nervous system. Otherwise, you're looking at the body as a sort of meat marionette. You pull on this and you see if this moves, but there's a brain and a spinal cord that's driving the processes for human movement. And the more that we began to study the, the nervous system, the more that we became really interested in how respiration plays a major role in brain function, how breathing becomes this um, immediate way to influence one's own physiology and becomes sort of an intersection between neurology, psychology, and physiology. And we realized that it was a tool that we could scale in the community really easily. So we built out a, a company called Breathe to Perform. Mm. And we got really deeply into the world of neuroscience and neuroscience related to, uh, to, to medicine, particularly, particularly in New York with an incredible partner by the name of Dr. Jose Herrero. Mm. And he works in epileptic neurosurgery um, at Northwell University Hospital. And when you're talking about the difference between looking at a hard science, something that we can put our hands on and that we can talk about and scale, and the way that mental health is being approached right now in 2021, these couldn't be more like night and day. Uh -huh. when you, when you, in epileptic neurosurgery, you're, you're, you have an atmosphere where you can put intracranial implants on the human brain. And it's the only field of neuroscience where they can do that. These people are in a hospital to have seizures induced to find the origin point of the seizure. And you can say, what happens to the human brain when we, when we um, play with patterns of respiration? What can we learn about how the brain functions and how we have agency to influence the functioning of the brain? What is stress management and anxiety management on a scientific, tangible, in your hands level that you are building a skill to manage stress and anxiety? And when we circled all that, or when we circle back to our work with young people here in the community, a question that we were forced to ask, just from a public health perspective, is we started to see the diagnosis around mental health disorders more than you know, crawl up, we're seeing a, a, a incredible sort of skyrocketing statistics. Maine has one in four Maine kids are diagnosed with a mental health disorder. And it, it coming from the world of, of harder sciences where, where a healthy skepticism, I think, is, is, is a tool that's important. And I'm sure you've seen this a lot in your work, and I'd love to hear you maybe speak to this. But when you're also coming from the world of peak human performance, and you're noticing the difference in tiers of analysis, Right, I've had people diagnosed with a lot of different things and it didn't lead me to believe without questioning the diagnosis that it was actually um, a, a definite prevalence. Mm -hmm. So we had to ask ourselves at some point here, are a quarter of the kids in our state disordered? Are a quarter of them suddenly mentally ill? That's coincidental and interesting. Mm. Or are we missing something critical about human physiology in a brand new technological environment? And are we performing the critical assessments to figure out whether what they're experiencing in rising states of anxiety, stress, depression, exhaustion, is a natural physiological response to a new environment, or if they were in fact are dealing with a mental health disorder. And that mm -hmm. became the, the, the initiative to turn a large portion of our lives to asking that question if we want to build a state and then beyond a future mm -hmm. where kids have the skills to, to succeed in rock and roll and that we're having a clear scientific conversation about the brain, the body, and ultimately then a conversation about the mind. Yeah, man, again, I, I it totally, coincides with a lot of the the paths I've been following for years and and yeah again I appreciate you connecting those dots to some extent and and in terms of the breathing I feel like I speak about it on every podcast yeah. episode I certainly speak yeah. about it with every uh person I work with whether it's a client patient whatever they're coming to me for um and and this is where I've gone from the traditional physical therapy model over the years 
to more of a, a holistic lifestyle change. Again, looking at the five pillars of health, uh, I still have struggling with this camera thing. Five pillars of health of uh, movement, uh, recovery, uh, the eating, the nutrition side, and then the mindset and connection where I think a lot of that taps in. But the breathing part, again, yeah, I want to I wanna make sure we hone in on that. Of, um, I heard a recent uh, podcast with Andrew Huberman. If, you, if you're familiar with him at all, have you seen his work? Uh, 100%. So, I mean, hopefully we'll circle back because we went to visit Andrew at Stanford um, at a really critical period of our development to work with him in his VR lab to study the stress response. So what he's doing is incredible work and just mm -hmm. like can't. I cannot say enough what an impact he's having on a generation of thinkers and also of students. Yes, and he has a great podcast, but the thing that I was going to um, point out that he said was, we're giving people a driver's license, and these are people who don't know how to control their breath. You know, and, and yeah. again, it's, it's, it, it, it almost sounds insane to say, like, we need to give out, like, a breathing card. Like, do you know, like, when, you, when you're in that state of rage and, or road rage, uh, you know, someone cuts you off. Do you have that ability to be, take a deep breath in through your nose and, and a slightly longer exhale? And that changes your physiology and you go from these, you know, natural hormones that took you to this place of rage and be able to control that and, and just change your mindset and change your, your whole uh, physiology, as it were. And uh, I, I think that that was such a cool thing that stood out for me on, on his podcast that uh, it was, he was on someone else's podcast, which, mm. uh, but he has an excellent podcast as well. And so some of the work he's doing is really phenomenal, but yeah, that concept of, and again, uh, you know, when you, so I, I'm trying to come at this from a few different angles, I guess, of when we look at this in a really big picture, Michelle Obama, if you will, uh, trying to change the landscape of American healthcare and, and just seeing, uh, can we get kids moving more, you know, 30, 30 minutes a day, that kind of thing. Um, versus, you know, can we go deeper into these kind of situations? And again, as much as I love what you're doing, and but do how many more David Biddlers are there out there? And is there one in every state? Is there one in every city? Can we, you know, right. find these resources? So that that really is the goal, you know, because I think that we're we're watching something that seems really negative happen. You talked about the you know life expectancy of young people. We're watching this cultural health battle that we're in. We're watching people we're watching the obesity rate creep to almost fifty percent. And that can look like a really dark path forward, like it's the only way forward. But when you hang with some of the young people who now, because of the technologies that they've been exposed to, their rate of accelerated learning, the things that they know, the, the curiosity that they have, and this infinite box of answers, right, which is the internet for better or for worse, depending on where you're going for the answers, has given them the opportunity to learn really efficiently, really rapidly. So there's a skill-based element to that. They have, you know, you and I would have to live 40 years to get 40 years worth of experience. But when you're putting this capacity for accelerated learning in the hands of young people, if you give them the skill to understand what it is, why it's a powerful hammer, how not to whack your toe with it, how to use it to actually build um, something constructive in your life, there's a chance there to see, a, I think, I hopefully, a cultural health renaissance. And if, if we take that, that off of the map of potential, I think we're gonna be looking at a really dark decline as technologies become more, you know, a deeper part of our lives. As we see more people, you know, um, we have a, with one in four kids in our state diagnosed with a mental health disorder, we're looking at the correlation to how many of them are put on addictive medications at right. a very, very young age. And one of the things that we built Physiology First for was, you know, to your point, and to talk about the work with Andrew Huberman, is to say, you know, Physiology First in a lot of ways is a new approach to learning. If we took a, a pivot here and began to learn about ourselves, what we physiologically are, what is the human brain, what is the human body, how does it work, we would be able to, from that perspective, that foundation, understand a lot more about the world around us. 
without living in these states of complete emotional reactivity with uh, a limited set of skills for self-control and with no path back to homeostasis, no path back to physiological resonance. So when we look at these kids diagnosed with um, disorders, we have to A, ask from a, a really skeptical and, and inquisitive and deeply concerned perspective, where is the disorder coming from? Where does this diagnosis originate? Because in the world of leading edge medicine, science and peak human performance, you're looking for um, analysis that is technologically relevant, that's using cutting edge technologies. It's one of the things that led us to Stanford. You're looking for incredibly recent research because we are not, uh, we're not a toaster oven here. We're a biologically complex organism in a fast changing world. And science is something that has to update itself in the life sciences all the time. It has to do that. When we begin to understand that this idea of being disordered, sorry about that. This idea of being disordered comes from the DSM-5, which is the latest edition of the uh, Psychiatric Association manual on mental health disorders. And the manual itself, this latest edition was, um, it was a project that they set out to, to work on in 1999 to update the DSM-4, which is from 1952. So you're looking at a manual from 1952 because the differences in the two of them, there are differences there, but they're not monumental. You're looking at a guide for understanding physiology and whether what we're experiencing when we are exhausted, have lack of focus, have anxiety, have chronic stress, or have depression, comes from a time that's just shortly after the period of full frontal lobotomies. Huh. So it, when you think about the cutting edge of neuroscience, when you're saying, I want the latest research with the best technology to make sure that I'm doing my job as a clinician, or as a, as a, as a healthcare practitioner, or as a coach, when you've put people, um, when, you've put out, when you've put information in someone's hands that come long before the birth of the internet in this case, and you're trying to ask whether what we're seeing in young people, when they're saying, I cannot sleep at night, I feel constantly anxious, I feel, mm. I feel stress, is that a natural appropriate physiological response for a new environment that we recently built? Or is something inherently wrong with them? And that would shape the conversation as to whether they need pills or skills as a first mm. step in giving them a chance to feel amazing in their bodies, minds, and brains. I like that pills versus skills. Oh man, that's, that's and it's that's, a question of it's a question of when, when, and what first, and in what instance would you ever try the second without trying the first, or vice yeah. versa? I forget what order I put them in there. Why yeah, would yeah. you not give somebody a set of skills and, and watch them work to apply that set of skills? Because we well, yeah, be, because the medical doctor when they come to the office, they they don't have that time. You know, they don't they, they're. Right. They don't have the billable hours or whatever to 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 or the re the resource to say go see David go see physiology first or or physiology uh, or the university right so I want to ask you about the university because uh, it was something I've been trying to develop along these lines I would say you know is like an avatar so a score right like we have these physical scores um, around an FMS let's say you know for those not familiar yeah. functional okay. movement screen. And you do seven moves and you get a score zero, one, two, or three. Zero if you have pain, uh, the one, two, three. Uh, three means you do it perfectly with absolutely zero compensation. So you can get a score of 21. Uh, again, not a perfect system by any means, but at the end of the day, we have a score. So you, you do the thing, you have a 14 out of 21, that's your score. Awesome. Uh, you're, you know, you're at the line of possibly not being likely to be injured or, or what have you. So uh, the research on that side, I'll just say for folks listening at home, is not super good. Um, not as good as we would like, but coming up with that kind of score, I've come up with my own version, kind of combining some of the things that I think are more useful, um, of again, like a breathing score. How, how well do you breathe? You know, do you, do, and that's a pass fail to some extent, 
Um, but having that whole, you know, 21 points or 100 points of, of uh, gamification and looking at, you know, David, let's, let's assess you head to toe and go through all these things. And then your score is a 72 out of 100. And again, that doesn't mean you're a C minus student or whatever. It means, you know, yeah. that's where we're at. Even the fittest man on earth, uh, if we go by CrossFit standards, uh, you know, was probably not going to be 100 or probably not even in the 90s. Um, you know, they're going to have all sorts of different ways to, to compensate and do things. So bottom line is, is I guess the question is to the point of skills and, and the university and what that's trying to accomplish. Is there something there or, or is there some kind of like uh, – the, the the other quick one I'll I'll, I'll keep rambling because again I we we both talked about we want to allow the other person to speak more so we're gonna keep working on that but but I this great. is this is what I'm working on so uh, the other th uh, thought stream that that takes me to which I kind of lost there for a second is um, does it does it allow us to um, yeah build those skills in a way um, and I totally lost my train of thought but but that's fine uh, so yeah I think there was a question in there. I'm going to throw it back to you. Well, you know, you're asking the same question that we are in a lot of ways, right? Because we began to assess this idea of psychological state before we had these tools to study biological state. And there's a great critique of the DSM-5 from 10 years ago. Maybe it's a little more than that. And the critique was, listen, we they're using this term psychobiological in the latest um, edition. But at the time, there wasn't really in a way with wearable technology to study biological state. It certainly wasn't accessible. You didn't have people studying their sleep, their respiration, their skin temperature, their heart rate, heart rate variability. These things were not in the realm of the wheelhouse of most folks. So to, to your point, you know, to think that, let me, let me give an example to kind of color this in a little bit. I was giving a presentation at our local high school and we we're talking about stress and anxiety. And we met, I mentioned at one point, I asked the kids, like, who here thinks stress and anxiety are big problems, either in the school or beyond? Every hand goes up. Every hand always goes up. There's an identification of the problem. And it, one young woman raised her hand. And she said, you know, I got diagnosed with anxiety mm. on Monday and I just want to die. Hmm. Okay. And I waited for that. You know, we, we moved the conversation forward a bit to make sure this didn't circle back on her. But in a few minutes I said, hey, you know, who among us can define stress or anxiety? And not a single hand goes up because we're talking about natural biological processes which can be studied and regulated as if they are abstract psychological concepts from the 1950s mm. because we haven't updated the language of mental health. So when I teach someone the skill of stress management, I want to know at a bare minimum that they can control their heart rate, that they can find a path back to physiological resonance and homeostasis. And if a child or anyone doesn't have that skill, and you can't practice that skill through talk. You know, we, we put kids in, in ice and cold water and have them breathe and we give them iced coffee. It's part of an event that we do. And they have so much fun inviting their friends to practice the skill of stress management because talking through stress management is like talking through exercise. You have to squat weight to squat weight. You have to do, um, you have to lift a load to, to adapt to lifting load. And because we've talked about stress and anxiety as psychological abstractions versus physiological realities, we haven't been able to put a set of skills in anybody's hands. Mm. So to answer your question about a score, I'll give an example of something that can be useful. I'm going to credit the work of uh, Dr. Leah Largos here, Lagos from New York. She's actually she's a New York person. <laughs> you know, she does she does a great job of of talking about how she uses heart rate variability and breathing with high level athletes and high level mental performers and people in the finance world, and showing them through simple imagery, simple wearable technology, how they can find resonance within their body by understanding how breathing is 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 linked to organ function and to heart rate function. And when you can do that and show someone how to find a path back to a physiologically resonant state, which is gonna be a little different for all of us, but it gives them the tool that they can train. When someone says to me, I, you know, I'm stressed and anxious, and I ask like, how often do you train stress and anxiety response in your body? 
And they say, never. I said, well, that would be the outcome of not training a characteristic or a skill. You wouldn't be adept at it yet. But if you trained it often, and if you trained it with others, and if you did it in a way that was so much fun and culturally relevant and cool, like when you see the kids hanging out here, having iced coffee, listening to Wu-Tang Clan, sitting in an ice bath, yeah. they're having a blast. And it's not, there's no, there should be no stigma associated with teaching young people the skill of self-regulation on a biological level so they that they can kick butt in the world. And that, that's what Physiology First University seeks to scale globally through our ambassador program. And that's what hopefully we'll circle to is how do you actually scale this yeah. mental health education that's physiological. Yeah, yeah, no, I love that. And uh, so I'm uh, a previous guest I had on, he was actually my high school guidance counselor. Uh, he now does public speaking coaching and oh, coaches great coaches folks for uh ted talks tedx talks that kind of oh, thing wonderful. so he was on he was on a few episodes ago with me and he kind of threw it on me uh turned it back to me and said hey if you had a ted talk tomorrow what would your topic be and and that's something that really has resonated with me i'm actually going to be mm. on on his uh third season of their podcast him and his partner cassie awesome. um so i'm bringing that up to say my topic is redefining fitness and 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 kind of how that and my brand is fit care so i'm trying to say if we focus on that fitness, which is to me includes all this physiology and these skills that you're talking about, um, that is going to help us avoid healthcare, aka these 25% of kids with ADHD diagnoses, mental health diagnoses, and and again, it's totally in line, and I love it. And so uh, the, the the other part too is uh, that I that I had lost that train of thought. I, I I I thought of it as you were speaking is the movement literacy. So again, when I'm talking through right. and I do the assessment, I can say, hey, like you're at a sixth grade level. And we want to get you to a PhD level of movement. You so, created a trajectory that they could follow, like you know that we yeah. need that often in our lives. Yeah. Yeah. So there's the gamification, and again, you know, can we take the technology that we have, like you're talking about, whether it's with mm -hmm. like a whoop strap, like I'm wearing now, um, where my sleep score I think was in the 60s today, or or mm -hmm. you know my recovery was only in the 60 percent, um, and so it's it's can we get that better? But yet, yeah, how do we keep building these skills, like you're saying? Uh, it, and is the university, I, I want to hear more about that if you don't mind. I don't know. Yeah, if 100%. No, 100%. I, I, to, to take us kind of on a, just on a quick path of what has happened since we built the technologies that influence our lives. And since this original manual of the DSM-5, which is being used to classify one in four kids in our neighborhood as disordered, we have to start to understand the impact of technology on neurology. And well, I'll give you, I'll share a really powerful statistic. Uh, since 2011, and when you, you can kind of remember, right, like it was 2000. I think it was 2009 that Facebook announced the like button. They opened, they, they uh, Facebook launched in 2004. And initially it was kind of like an address book. You're like, hey, I listen to Wu-Tang Clan and I like, um, <laughs> you know, whatever, right? So, you know, this is the clothing that I wear. This is me online. And there wasn't this insidious nature of being able to track data. And what you've ended up with now with the like button and then Facebook, uh, Twitter adding their version of that and then adding a retweet and then Facebook taking that concept is you've allowed for a revenue-based industry to be built around our collective attention. I can see what you like, advertisers can see what you like, and they can show you more of what you like. And if we wanna to try to understand what that's done, and even from a data perspective, you know, since 2011, the rate of US hospitalizations for preteen girls um, for self-harming, for, for cutting mm -hmm. and for self-harm is up 189%. With yeah. teen girls, it's up 62%. The rate of suicide is up 151% for mm. preteen girls. And so what you're starting to ask is what happens when you build technologies that work to capitalize on attention? And what is the net mental health result of understanding our own propensity for sort of A, a negativity bias, 
we're more likely to click on a piece of negative news so we're shown more negative news and that skews right. our version of the world that's not not an awesome thing and then our our need to belong you know we've created a system where it's almost a social ranking system mm-hmm. you were talking about that at the beginning of the podcast right you know 5000 followers 50,000 yeah. followers, 1 million followers. You've created this new system of social ranking and you've put young people in this for the first time in history from birth, many of them. It, you know, the internet came into our lives, but the internet is, 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 is part of their, their sort of network as soon as they're old enough to, to interact with it. And to not take that into consideration in the diagnostic process. When you're looking at the diagnostic process as it is, they're, they're, they're basically, I want to actually read to you what it, um, what it is so we can break it down a little bit. Right, because we're talking about, there we go. I just feel like it's, uh, I had this actually written down. Essentially, we're talking about this idea of dysfunction, right? And when we're talking about dysfunction, we have to be able to ask the, the, the question, what is normal physiological function? What are we talking about here? A diagnosis by definition is the identification of an illness or a problem based on observation of the symptoms. And the way that the DSM is set up and the way that the process for analyzing the mental health of the generation is set up is that it's non-theoretical as to the origin of the symptom. It doesn't work to make an attempt to circle back and say why. So if you show me that you have two symptoms of anything, I can say, okay, well, we're gonna take these symptoms and I'm not gonna try to trace them back to the external environment. Now, it would be helpful to know if I was talking to someone who had drank more coffee than usual. It would be helpful to know if they were on an illicit drug. It would be helpful to know if they were in the middle of an ultra marathon race. It would be helpful to circle back so that I can say, is the, is the state that they're in physiologically resonant with the environment that they're in? And is what they're experiencing a natural response to that? When you have somebody do exercise, what do you see in their body change? All the physiology. Yeah. <laughs> as soon as you start to have them move, you know, as, as, as someone working with, um, with humans, in exercise is basically applied stress physiology, right? Mm-hmm. You get somebody up and you start to have them do things and you see changes in pupil dilation and skin temperature. They begin to sweat, their face begins to get flush. And then you either crank up the stress to create a specific adaptation and to you watch them demands. Go, to impose demands. <laughs> and, and you know what? And it never does not happen the way that you assume that it would. Right. As you crank this up, you watch physiological stress, the human autonomic nervous system, the sympathetic branch of the autonomic nervous system, crank up and you can put someone in a state where they're as stressed as stress can be in a training setting and watch that that happens every time. You would want to understand the external stimulation associated with that state, or you would have a hard time gauging whether it was appropriate, dysfunctional, disordered, or perfectly natural. Mm-hmm. So to understand, to circle us back to the technology, we're not even attempting to look at the fact that the average person swipes their phone 2,600 and something times a day. Yeah. So when you think about that alone, you're taking this upright primate, this, this animal in a, in a new technological world, you're giving it incredibly addictive digital candy. And you know what it's liked, what it's done, what it said it liked, you know its vulnerabilities, you know its habit patterns, its shopping patterns, you know all of its things that it looks up when it's by itself. And you put it on a phone where it clicks and clicks and clicks and clicks, you constantly rate its perceived social approval, and then you ask it, how are you feeling? Mm-hmm. And it says anxious, stress, exhausted, and messed up. And you're like, well, disorder. <laughs> so sorry to tell you that you have a mental illness mm. or a mental disorder. And at some point we have to say, it's 2021, not 1952. Let's take a look at the digital environment that we're in and then ask, what do we do from here? Because we're not going backwards. Right. So for Physiology First University, we're asking a couple of questions. And one is, can you, can you make an impact on this work through um, uh, uh, online? And because of computer algorithms, it is nearly impossible. 
you know, it, a challenge I have for everybody. If you're not living in a particular rabbit hole, we all are, right? I mean, you and I, I bet you both have a fairly similar Instagram stream. I'm sure elements are different, mm -hmm. but if we were to switch phones for a day, I don't think we'd be blown away to find a different world in there. Right. I think we'd find similarities, right? But if you were to switch phones with one of the students who, you know, 16 year olds who hangs out here, you might find a completely different world in a web of algorithms in political ideologies and marketing, uh, marketing to insecurities and in particular insecurities, mm -hmm. right? In that phone, they're looking at it all day long. So if we think that we can say, like every time we do a presentation with young people, we say, follow Dr. Andrew Huberman. We show video from our trip to Stanford with him mm -hmm. in his VR lab, where it shows my partner Lex and I walking through these experiments in fear and measuring human physiology. Mm. And being in this VR lab where you're exposed to these different stimuli, attack dogs, um, great mm. white sharks, puzzles, you can watch the fact that physiology always speaks first. Before you're perceptibly anxious or stressed, things start to change in the body, respiration rate changes, skin temperature changes. And the more that you can get ahead of that response by developing this skill of somatic awareness and sort of physiological interoception, the more that you can do something like a simple breathing exercise or some high agency tool to, to shift state. And we show them the experiments because they're really cool. And the kids get a kick out of seeing us in this like digital VR, you know, uh, fear jungle. But then we say, hey, go follow Andrew Huberman as if that's going to solve the problem. The problem right. is that he'll be washed out of their algorithm stream because they're right. not going to buy. And Huberman, by the way, has nothing to sell. He's incredible yeah. and a mentor in every way. But, but to that point, if you want to solve the problem, you're not going to get, you won't break through the algorithm. So I think what you can do is this. The point of Physiology First University is to put a resource center for 21st century mental health education on the internet. And it's really for adults more than anything. Mm. Because what it allows them then to do is to set up a pop-up mental health education campus with the curriculum in their community anywhere, anytime. And when we do that, we have ambassadors now globally setting up these pop-ups. And now you have an actual in the park event or in the gym event or in the community or in the school event where you're bringing kids together to learn about breathing and state regulation and self-management in person with each other through an ambassador of our organization and the likelihood that they can meet again and again, if you start to attach to things like training and running and fitness, you're building what hopefully can be intergenerational bonds for community fitness at a time when one quarter of health and fitness gyms or clubs may not make it through 2021. Mm -hmm. So it forces the question, you know, what got you into fitness? What was the thing in your neighborhood that maybe it was school, maybe it was football. For, for a lot of folks, it was some type of gym or martial arts studio. If we can put tangible, accessible outlets for 21st century physiology-based, science-based mental health education in communities and make it a hell of a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. I think that that's the first step. And we need we built the university to give people the resources to hold a workshop as an ambassador so they didn't have to go on the internet and say, what the hell right. do I know about breathing or sleep or movement mm. or persuasive technology or anything else? Yeah, man. Uh, the, I wanted to circle back to, to something that, uh, again, stood out to me is yeah this root cause that you know that's that's really what the heart of this is is how do we change that root cause like you're talking about you go to the doctor you have anxiety instead of saying like what is causing this anxiety you're saying here's a pill to deal with the anxiety um and and hopefully calm you down you can keep doing what you're doing you know let's not change anything <laughs> and that's unfortunately the world we live in right and here's a good question i mean what what is a what is a doctor what is a 21st century mental health practitioner in this new time and age because i think the problem is that you've looking at a time when social science and social scientists have the dominant position in medical science in distributing pharmacological drugs to a generation mm -hmm. of kids. 
And where are the physiological assessments? Where are the basic things you would need to test and check right. to make sure that, again, that that's not a natural physiological response? I, I gave a, I, I was talking to my buddy Rick Alexander on his show, and I, I thank you yep. for, for sharing that. And I gave this quick thought exercise. If you don't mind, I'll share it here just because mm -hmm. it may set a stage. You know, if, if I said, hey, you know, Bo, we have this, um, this uh, experiment, and if you go into it, we're going to learn a lot about the stress and anxiety response. And basically, it's a five-day sleep study. So we're going to put you in a room for five days. It's an all-white room. It's like a sensory deprivation tank of sorts, mm -hmm. right? There's nothing in there. And here are the rules. You can sleep three hours a night. Right? Somebody will wake you up after the three-hour mark. You have to drink a mandatory 100 ounces of caffeine a day. It's part of the game. Mm -hmm. And you can eat as much as you want, but you can only eat fruity pebbles. <laughs> you have to spend your waking hours in a chair or a bed. We can assume that after seven days or five days or whatever the duration, you would walk out a physiological wreck. And we would understand from there that when you disrupt human physiology, when you basically put a rat in a cage and shine bright lights in its face and stimulate the hell out of it and provide chronic stress, its response is similar, but similar across people, and it's incredible state of physiological dysregulation. And if you were to work that back, you'd have to ask, what is physiological resonance? What is a state that's a baseline that you can give young people a way to get back to so that they have some idea how to control the state of their body under extremely challenging circumstances. And to do that without training would be nearly impossible. I don't know a skill that can be built without actively working on it. And that's the skill that we're not giving young people right now is we're calling them, we're calling them disordered. Yeah. Yeah, and, and then again, we just go to that quick pill fix. Um, the other analogy I was gonna say there is people get diagnosed with diabetes, which is coming from having too much sugar, basically too many sugar spikes, too many carbohydrate spikes, insulin spikes. And then what do we give them? Keep eating the cake that you've been eating. Just make sure you take an extra dose of insulin because now your body isn't making that insulin, but just keep, keep doing that. And let's keep going down that downward spiral, if you will. Um, yeah. The other stats that jump out to me similarly uh, that I do think are relevant here is I think that there was a recent study that showed that only 12%, you talk about 50% obesity rate, but only 12% of the population qualifies as metabolically healthy. Um, based on pretty, yeah, based on pretty basic, uh, and, and, and again, th it's this, this cultural thing, uh, that again, as we're talking about it, like, I love obviously what you guys are doing and you talk about the ambassador program, but you know, we see PE programs getting cut left and right. We see actual gyms with that's COVID. I mean. Yeah. Yes. That's exactly it. And you know, when, when I look at, when I look at some of the limitations there, even in terms of the traditional, uh, you know, physical educational infrastructure in schools and whatnot, there's a lot more, um, there's a lot more barriers there in terms of innovation and things that you can do to really be innovative. When, we, when you want to think outside of the box, I mean, young people will let you know what they dig and enjoy by coming mm -hmm. back to it again and again and inviting their friends and saying, can I come tomorrow? And can I come tomorrow? And can I come the next day? Yeah. That's how you know that it's working. So when we hold our events here, you know, we don't, we don't talk very much about stress or anxiety because focus is fertilizer. Where you put your focus is what grows. We mm -hmm. talk about feeling awesome, reaching goals, goal, goal clarity peak performance, kicking butt, being of value, solving problems. And we show people that, that, we show young people that if we can understand, for example, how to lower, if you can lower your heart rate with agency after a tough workout, and if you can look at the training session itself as more than just a way to burn calories, but a way to build skills, and you can look at it as a correlative to training for your life, then you have a chance to actually practice stress. I've given you, I've gotten you out of breath, so to speak. Mm -hmm. I've given you two heavy kettlebells to hold and to mm -hmm. breathe in that position for 30 seconds. And you have a chance, which is to wiggle all around and not be present or to learn presence. But I couldn't have talked to you through that lesson. Mm -hmm. When I put you in cold water, ice cold water, when I show you how to regulate your state and I give you a few breathing exercises that let you head into the stress, 
mentally clear, expecting it to be stressful, and then taking control of your body's response. And then asking you at the end, hey, like, where else would you do that? Oh, I would do that like if I had like a job interview or if I was getting up, I have a recital. Mm-hmm. Great, that's the lesson. It doesn't have to be deeper than that. So I think that as you think about 21st century mental health education, maybe the greatest challenge right now is the battle of language. When people hear us talk about mental health, I don't think they think health, I think they think illness. I think that we have become, we were so far away from being proactive about the health of the body, brain, and mind right. that we say we're working with kids on mental health and they go, oh, what's wrong with them? Nothing. Mm. We're working with them. To, <laughs> health, health inherently means health. Right. Maybe we need to talk about mental fitness. Maybe we need yes. to talk about 21st century skills. But that's, but again, health should mean health and it should be something that we're pursuing with ferocity, tenacity, and focus if we don't want to end up ill. Right. And that's the World Health Organization's definition of health is literally the absence of disease, not anything past that. And, I mean, and- think about this just as a, you know, as a practitioner. Imagine that you put out a, a promo for your business around that. Be free of disease. <laughs> and you're like, where are, the, where are the people? No one got attracted to that. We don't right. have, we have gyms and CrossFit clubs and jujitsu studios and martial arts studios because we're not wired to want to be free of disease. We're wired to want to kick ass. <laughs> That's not the height of human experience is to not be sick. And so when you remember that, you can ask, what are 21st century skills? We're building a new project on the platform to let young people share 21st century skills because the challenge I think we'll all run into, and it's a critique that we get that I'm, I'm happy to address anytime, is people say, okay, well, physiology, sure, but then what else? Well, physiology first applies that there's something next and that's all of the world. Mm. Get to a space of physiological resonance and then you have to figure out technology, industry, the economy, your life, your purpose. That's a hell of a lot to deal with. It's easier when you're in a state that's not chronically stressed, anxious, and exhausted. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And uh, total, total kind of side note. I don't want to lose. The, I feel like there's a few good momentum uh, pieces we can go off of here. But I did want. I wrote this down. I wanted to see if. Are you familiar with um, Stand Up Kids, the the organization? It's ringing a bell, but I can't think of why. Uh, Kelly Starred and Juliet Starred. Yes. Oh, aren't they doing amazing work? Yes, yes. So for those not familiar, basically it's it's pushing, uh, and again, it's these little changes that, that we're talking about here, talking about root cause of, of what can we do as a culture. That's where that's where the thing that, again, uh, you know, comes back to me of, of I love the, all the ideas you're talking about, but yeah, how do we, other than, you know, like if I, I as a single practitioner, my, my aim is to work with 20 people one-on-one, mm-hmm. and at the point I charge, you know, that, that's all the bandwidth I have. Um, there's big ways to, to reach bigger people. I used to be in the CrossFit space, so I could start, I could see 20 people per hour and, and hopefully affect 20 people per hour and give them skills and little things like I would used to, used to do in class. If I caught somebody standing with their arms crossed, uh, boom, burpee. So like we start breaking out of that habit <laughs> or, or, or the other one was sexy pose where you, you stand with the, you know, you, I can't even do it. And everything else. Yeah. 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 The yeah, sexy yeah, pose yeah, yeah. or a country club lean as some people call it, but yeah, so just breaking right. out of some of those habits on top right. of, like you're talking about, there is actually a workout in CrossFit exactly, like you're talking about the two kettlebells called um, Exhaust Pipe, and you do it mm. with a partner, and yep. if, you're, if you're familiar, that's where you guys got it from. Of, you row, you're going to jump up and clean it. Yeah, so I'm, right. I'm standing yes. there holding the bells while you're rowing, and then you row, and then we switch. And But yeah, it's, it's all about breathing into that. And again, right. it's amazing. Right. Um, it's amazing how some of these physical fitness challenges have these built-in uh, mindset kind of pieces to it. And it's, it's also being able to connect to that stuff of having the right coach at the time that's, to explain, we're not just gonna suffer through this hour long thing 
it's let's let's take an extra second to to think about what that actually means. And I actually I actually had two different coaches uh, that uh, you know hopefully this brings some uh, some relevance to to this conversation. But uh, as I was starting to compete in CrossFit uh, myself, probably ten years ago, I had one coach uh, that is more, much more, I would say into the evidence, the science, very kind of stoic. And basically when it came to mindset and, and having that resilience and or anti-fragility, if you will, um, the mindset was the only way you're going to build that confidence of being able to do a hundred thrusters for time and, you know, be able to do that exactly at the pace, you know how to do it or row 500 meters at a 141.0, right, right. no matter, no matter how tired you are, um, was to just do that and be able to consistently do that. And then you rest for two minutes and you can do it again. And then you rest for one minute and you can do it again and you can keep building that. So you have that, that library of what your skill set is. Uh, so the other coach though, was more on the, like, we need to get you to seal fit and you need to suffer and you need to be able to overcome these, these hurdles and obstacles. Sure, sure. And, and again, it's, you know, it, it is kind of, if you will, the CrossFit model of let's keep throwing different things at you. And can you succeed and adapt to these different, you know, and there's a thousand different strategies or ways yeah. that we can challenge you. And that is uh, kind of the fun part of, again, going, staying, staying a little bit with the CrossFit side of uh, when you test human performance and, and when you're testing these fittest people on earth, it's what if we do it with a, at, in a hundred degrees outside, like who's going to push through and be able to regulate their physiology and be aware of you take w the, the woman who won fittest woman on earth and she collapsed in the last, like, you know, with a, a mile left to go in that mm -hmm. workout. Whereas, right. you know, and she was just pushing past that point, either she didn't uh, hydrate properly or whatever. There's all these different factors. So anyway, it's, it's, it's a fascinating thing to look at um, and, and to see, you know, how can we, uh, and one other really interesting thing I'll bring up about the CrossFit side uh, that again, I don't, you sound like you're semi, somewhat uh, familiar with some of these CrossFit stories a little bit. Yeah, I came out of the CrossFit world, you yeah. know, and you know, initially that was my, my inroad into so much of this was from Brazilian yeah. Jiu Jitsu to ultra running to CrossFit and yeah. having lived what it feels like to be sedentary and not training your body and mind right. and, and how absolutely crappy and dark that was. Hmm. And when you're in that, you don't ever have a desire to get out of it because you've never experienced right. an alternate perspective. You're at the height of what potential feels like. If we can't tell a cultural narrative that life should feel awesome and you should wake up with energy and ready to kick right. some ass. And I feel like, you know, maybe we'll circle to this at the end, but I don't mean to, to derail your No, 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 this is better, this is better. I, I, I think just to the point though, we're, right now we are watching, especially after COVID, the rewriting of a new cultural narrative. And we have, we're really gonna have to ask ourselves, is this being written by social scientists or by, biology because mm. physiology and biology is the story that the world tells about us and culture is the story that we tell about the world and if we decide from your standpoint that biology shows us practices of anti-fragility it shows us that when i break down muscle muscle grows stronger mm -hmm. when i expose myself to stress i get stronger that that's a biological reality we're going to have to ask is that going to be the cultural narrative or is it going to go the other way and we're going to have to ask which narrative we're going to follow and point young people towards because you can you know, um, you can tell any story that you want about stress or anxiety, but you either have the skill to manage your state when it gets real, when shit hits the fan, so to speak, or you don't. And the world outside at large is a pretty unforgiving environment. It's a, it's, it's a, it doesn't tell, um, it doesn't conform to any of our beliefs. It challenges us in really, really deep ways. And I think that we're going to see a really big, um, 
I don't know, uh, a pulling apart of different social ideologies right now and different mm -hmm. cultural stories about what it means to be a human in the 21st century. And I think what we need to do with young people is remind them that there are multiple versions of that story and that they have the ability to write their own. And that's harder on social media. So we need to build places where young people can connect with mentors who yeah. shatter the paradigm of the algorithm that they're in. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I love that. I did want to step back for a second. You brought up anti-fragility, and I think I said it as well earlier, and I just wanted to clarify what that is for those listening who might not be familiar with the difference between resiliency and anti-fragility, um, so, and as well, fragility. So fragility is you, you're, you're faced with a, and, and correct, jump in here if, if uh, you have a better definition or, 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 or I'm getting anything wrong, but fragility being you're faced with uh, some kind of stimulus, and now you get weaker because of it. Uh, and simply you're, you're not able to rise to that challenge. Uh, resilience is that you face that, again, cold water immersion or what, what have you, and you're able to bring yourself back to baseline. So wherever you started before that, but anti-fragility is, uh, as you just kind of alluded to, uh, doing the workout, breaking down the muscle and getting stronger as a result of that stimulus. So I think it's important that we, we do define uh, terms like that of anti-fragility yeah. uh, of, yeah, we actually want, a lot of people like resilience, uh, and think that that's a good thing. But again, by definition, it's just getting back to base. And, and, and to the point of COVID that you're talking, you know, we also touched on that a few times. People are like, can't wait to get back to normal. And it's right. like, <clears throat> was normal that great? Was, was it that great? Or do we want to be setting the, I mean, <laughs> yeah. a question that I'll ask you because I, I love your work in this area. And I think it's maybe one of the things that's led to this conversation. But at some point here, we have to ask where we set the bar for human potential yes. and what's on the map of potential. Because if mm -hmm. we continue to let that bar be pulled down, Beyond physiology, imagine you took a young person and you said, look, this is a way to get back to peak physiological resonance. I can control my heart rate variability. I can understand heart rate variability. I can use breathing to regulate state. I'm sleeping well, I'm eating well, all the stuff, right? I'm working out five times a week, but I am completely unprepared for that larger world around me. Mm -hmm. We're going to run into the same issues where, where we need physiology, managing physiology to me is like if you're driving in a New England blizzard, right? And I mean, the snow is pouring down. This is the ability to turn on a windshield wiper. Mm -hmm. And a windshield wiper only allows you to see the road. It doesn't change what road you are on. Mm. And the ability to, to, to think about things like anti-fragility and to show young people that these cultural narratives on adaptation, resilience, or whatever um, words you're gonna use, that probably what needs to happen, and this is a difference I think in the social sciences and hard sciences, is that words need to mean things. Words cannot be complete abstracts. I you know, that has been a big change in my, my adult life in the past decade is understanding that word clarity is so important. Mm. I've had I've had young people who say to me, you know, yeah, I'm, I've got mental disorders. What does it mean? Mm. I don't know, you know, I, I have anxiety. Mm -hmm. what, what does that mean to have it? You're talking about a physiological state. Right. Hunger is a physiological state, exhaustion is a state. These are, are transient states. Mm -hmm. And to ask, I think the big question in the room right now is twofold, one is, what are the physiological prerequisites for mental health? And are we getting that information from hard science or from social science? Because they may be different answers, but one of them is gonna be able to be tested through time when we look at things like the latest breakthroughs in neuroscience that show us how stimulation affects memory, focus, stress, exhaustion, all of these things. What are the physiological prerequisites? If I don't exercise at all, if I'm constantly dehydrated, constantly exhausted and um, isolated in so many ways, and I'm looking at little, I'm, I'm clicking little signs of yeah. social approval 2,600 times a day. What response should that elicit? And if we could answer that question, that we can make sure that we're pointing young people 
towards a practice that lets them get back to meeting the physiological prerequisites that make mental health possible. Mm. From there, you have an entire world to build. And a lot of that's gonna be based on the story that you tell about yourself in the world and who you're surrounding yourself with. And I think for us as adults, to understand the power of computer algorithms that make the world look really small, it's gonna be our job, I think, in the 21st century to break through these algorithms, use technology in new ways, and make sure that young people and all of us see that a high bar for human potential is still on the map of potential. It's a critical landmark. And if you're not pursuing it, why would you feel anything other than depressed, anxious, and chronically stressed? Yeah. Yeah, I love it. Um, it's, it's brought me to something I've been exploring a bit more recently. And I don't know, again, if this does or how it fits into your uh, side of things. But uh, have you looked into attachment theory at all? You know what? No, I actually heard, I was listening to your excellent podcast with um, the, the gentleman with the YouTube, um, uh, who was recently did his TED talk. Mm. And I heard you mention the book on attachment theory, but I've not, I've not come across it. Yeah. So it, it, it's interesting to me, because again, as you're, as you're speaking through, uh, and we're talking about fragility, anti-fragility, um, and, and dealing with the 21st century kind of algorithm, everyone can respond differently, right? And, and so attachment theory is based on how you are as a child, and, and they kind of take a, a, a newborn or a two or your one-year-old and, and they have the mother leave the room in, in these experiments and how that child responds, whether they're crying for the mother initially, a normal response, but then uh, secure is one of the main attachment styles. There's, there's four main attachment styles. Secure being, okay, mommy left. She'll hopefully be back, but I'm, I'm going to go ahead and play. And, and now I'm like, oh, you left. I'm, I'm sad about that, but I'm able to you know adjust and, and, and control myself versus anxious stays crying the whole time uh you know that 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 the mother's gone until the mother comes back uh that kind of thing there's so there's secure anxious and avoidant and now the the very interesting side of this is how that relates to like uh adult relationships or dating mm -hmm. um and and again you know people become anxious and and again when it comes to like why why is he not responding to my text it's been 5 minutes you know <laughs> or or avoidant yeah. is is you're leaning in and you're saying I want more intimacy and now avoidant is I don't I don't I'm not ready for that because I'm a, I'm afraid of getting hurt or whatever the the deeper uh, understanding of a lot of this stuff is and so I think it's a super interesting uh, lens to put on top of some of these physiological concepts of again like you're talking about the being in the blizzard is a, is a fun analogy we could take that down um, but yeah it, it's a fun analogy of how do people some people respond. Mm -hmm. It's a great analogy, and I think you can probably even correlate it to the quarantine, right? Because everybody yeah. almost used one of those practices. If, if you put everybody in a quarantine and you leave them to their social groups, you're going to find people who want, above all else, to be in environments that challenge them less and give them the most acceptance when they're going through a hard time. Right. And you're going to see people who do the opposite. They're going to say, wait a minute, this is, a ch this is like blowing a tire on a road that I knew I was going the wrong way to begin with. I'm going to actually look at new material and try to get a new gauge on uh, myself in the world. And with computer algorithms being what they are, I think that you saw a, a peak moment during the quarantine where human connection was so necessary and so possible. Mm -hmm. We have this device that connects us to the whole half, the, you know, to half of the world that's plugged in right now. And it almost happened for a brief moment there. You know, you really saw, I think, in, at least from my little world of, of computer algorithms, this beautiful moment of people jumping on in authentic ways and trying to be helpful and asking big picture questions about what the, the virus was and where we should go from here. And then you watched everyone get pulled into an ideological rabbit hole mm -hmm. and they all got dark and they all got deep. And I think, you know, to your point around attachment theory, 
or from the way that you explained it, you we watch how people interface with social media and it gives us a lot of insights into A, how certain people um, gravitate towards approval and acceptance above all else and will adopt an ideology that supports that, how some people are still kind of able to be rebels on the internet and don't care about the likes or the dopamine yeah. hits as much. And the question that I think we're forced to ask, which we started with a little bit, is well then what do we know about the future of technology? Because if we understand the convergence of these major technological industries, biotechnology, infotechnology, what do we know about the convergence of virtual reality and things like, um, I mean, you, 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 have, you have a prevalence of, you know, I'm, I'm trying to think of where, you know, pornography sits on the internet in terms of like most clicked on things, right? Mm -hmm. Well, now mm -hmm. you're adding in all of these elements of virtual reality and artificial intelligence. Where do we think that's gonna converge to a positive, optimal, net positive social state? Right, or is that gonna be a generally good thing to watch a lot of these technologies get deeper and more sophisticated that keep people at home and give them a harder you know, exit to come back into the real world and interact with people? If we think that's gonna get worse then our approach to solving this youth mental health uh, issue has to get a lot more urgent, a lot more direct. If we think, if we have reason to believe that the technologies that are being built are gonna have a net positive and get us out of our algorithms and create peak human connection, I'd love to hear that argument, but I haven't yet. Mm. You know, I've been, and at the same time, we're still in the shaping phase, all of us of technology. We're not just passengers here. Right. So I think it leads to a good question as to what is mentally healthy technology? What is the future of technology? And is it gonna pour gasoline on our fires or is it somehow going to put them out? And I think that's up to us to, to not just watch from the sidelines, <laughs> crossing yeah. our fingers and, and rooting for the, um, the positive there. Right. Um, one thing I wanted to touch on as we're coming up on the hour and I want to be respectful yeah. of your time is, I guess, obviously with deal, working with kids, how much of this and, and how do you, I, I'd like to hear your, your thoughts on marketing this concepts to parents mm -hmm. and, yeah. and how much buy-in do we need from the parent and, and modeling from the parent as well as just getting them to sign up for this kind of program where you asked about, you, you were starting to talk about in my own personal experiences, one, one of my introductions to the physical culture. I mean, I was very grateful that uh, my mother would swim like every day. We lived it's in Coney Island. Time, right? Yeah, yep. Yeah, so, you know, there was definitely that modeling of physical culture is pretty important. And so, uh, cool, It's a, you wanna go do karate right. or you wanna go do football, cool, go do that. But um or run around brooklyn and, and hit and play stickball or whatever um but yeah it, it really is an interesting um thing so yeah the question is uh how how is that marketing how much of it is about parent buy-in uh or school buy-in so the stand-up kids we didn't really talk much about that um real quick is is they're they're getting the school to buy in and the parents might, you know, you might even have PTA people like objecting initially, uh, but it's it's getting the resources and ultimately all you really need to do is kind of almost eliminate those desks um, and and the, just the physiological benefits of, of kids standing versus yeah, sitting it's, the whole time. It's, it it's incredible. Yeah. So again, coming back to it, how do we, how are you currently starting to, to, to put your resources towards parents, toward the kids being excited about it? Obviously there's mm -hmm. that buy-in when they're there, but uh, you know, or again, the institutions, the government, the, you know, so that's the real big question. Great for question. Me that, yeah. I, I love them. And, and, you know, and we set out to be a solutions focused organization. You know, I think that we've talked, we, we look at, we just went through this thing called mental health awareness month. And I don't know what anyone became aware of. I didn't see any <laughs> campaign to become aware of anything. I, it wasn't even a cogent conversation of what we were talking about, right? Like you can, you can look at an issue and, and a point at it with more people, but that doesn't solve the problem. So to answer your question directly, we initially started out partnering with schools and we still do. We do professional development with teachers and with um, 
with supervisors and with teams to make sure that the, the leaders in the school have the tools. And then we scale them down through curriculum to the parents and the teachers in a district, right? So that's one, one approach is actually going through the traditional school system. Um, and, and then make sure that everybody is, that we're not forcing this up, that we're not giving it to kids and having them come, ho come home to their teacher or their parent who doesn't have the skill set to begin with. That's such a critical thing. If we can do that though, there are times when the school is not receptive. There are times when it's not the best outlet because what kids get from getting to choose what they're learning and where, you look at the neuroscience of learning, the things that we choose to learn, we learn more effectively. So whether you're coming into a school is the best place to do this in an auditorium. I've spoken to auditoriums of 200 kids and I've had a much more, um, I think valuable experience hanging out with four kids, teaching them how to breathe in an ice bath. Yeah. I think if you're going through the school route, you can definitely do that. We also partner with mental health practitioners, tradi traditional therapists, traditional psycho psych psychotherapists, neuropsychologists, to make sure that we're collectively bringing in the latest research on stress physiology, because these kids may be facing a practitioner who should have all of the tools in their toolbox to assess physiological state. Mm. And then the other part of that pro pro uh, pro process, I think, it's with our Physiology First Ambassador program and our pop-up campuses, a lot of the people, like if you see our content on Physiology First at Instagram, it's certainly not directed towards young people. It's right. directed towards people like you. It's directed towards high agency leaders and communities who are interested in health and fitness. And they can then set up a campus. So right. imagine that they attached it to the CrossFit class. They right. said, hey, after the class, everybody, we're jumping in this ice bath. We're hmm. actually, we, we have this, so our Iced Coffee for Ice students iced bath event was a lot of fun. We now have kids helping us, um, scale the model and we're sending out pop-up ice baths to yeah. communities. So imagine if afterwards you said, hey, to your athletes at the CrossFit gym, we're all going in, we're doing some ice work uh, uh, you know, and breath work. And we're also gonna invite, we're gonna give free iced coffee to all the students in the neighborhood who might come to it. Now you've created an opportunity for the young person who might've been a little too nervous to jump right into the workout to check out the gym. Yeah. Now somebody invites their friend and challenges them. Hey, you guys, are you gonna do it? It was super fun. Now you have young people hanging out in the health and fitness hubs and communities learning physiology-based education attached to the current thing that was happening. Because you, you are all gonna be the, the hub in the community. It's the practitioners, the gyms, the schools. And you can, you can add a pop-up to anything you're currently doing. Yeah. And it adds this element of leading edge mental health education to a thing already happening that's already a super net positive for the neighborhood. The real question that brings me to is how do we make ice cheaper? To, to <laughs> so you you have come to the question on the board at physiology first city because I we so we have um this is actually really funny so we have a gas station right up the road here mm -hmm. we keep sending different people to get like nine <laughs> bags of ice and the gas station yeah. like, are you with that group with the lobster tank? yeah yeah because <laughs> our, our our ice bath uh, boat is an old lobster tank our mm. university is connected to a gym is connected to a boatyard right and this old lobster tank we fill it up <laughs> with ice water. And every time, here's a, a quick thing to kind of leave with, every time the students want to jump in in the highest state of stress, as if, mm -hmm. it's a, as if they want to suffer through it, they want to just get it done. And every time we'll say, wait, hold up. Mm. You go in there in a state of stress, you're not getting it back. I want you to right now use your breath to calm your body. And I want you to mm -hmm. hold that calm when you go in. And I want you to know that it's going to be colder than you think it's going to be. And when you feel your body change, I want you to use your breath to take control of your body. And I want to prepare them that way. And you can see them go in in a different state, sink into the water, realize that I weren't, I was not lying. It's colder than you expect <laughs> and self-regulate. And then if you give them one tangible thing, like, again, where would you use that elsewhere? And they go, I would use that at my, you know, I, I have track championships this week. I have a, I'm giving a talk before the class and I'm nervous. You've shared the skill of stress management in a lived way. 
and you've created some an opportunity to engage with stress that was fun, culturally relevant, and ongoing. And I think that's the most important thing we can do right now. I love it, man. I love it. Um, we are coming up on the hour, but I, I did I did want to just get your quick two cents on some of the current trends. I've noticed that people are starting to buy into whether it's Wim Hof breathing, um, XPT. If you're familiar with those guys, uh, medi just meditation in general, because mm -hmm. there's a lot of, of uh, I feel like medit, I, I, and this is my quick two cents on that is I feel like a lot of the breathing stuff is a backdoor into the meditation. And like for me personally, I'm more into the breathing and I feel like I get meditative when I breathe. Uh, and so th there's obviously over, over, you know, uh, carryovers between them. And the, the fourth one that, uh, I just have is, is like kind of the box breathing or these different co sim simple concepts, uh, that, and that comes from uh, where I saw it was seal fit of again, like four seconds in four second, hold four second out four second, hold, uh, that kind of thing. You can play around with all the, the tempos and numbers and things like that, but definitely a lot of interesting stuff. So where, where do you stand with, you know, are, are just more of these tools good and, and should we just kind of. Anything well, you know, should be celebrated. You know, to answer that question, I wrote I wrote this really short book, and I'm releasing it. Um, I released it last year, but I'm releasing it as a free ebook actually um, this Monday, so that more people could have it as a free tool, especially students and coaches and community leaders. And it's called Breathe to Perform: Simple Breathing Exercises to Reduce right. Stress, Improve Energy, and Peak Athletic Performance. And it's a very very it's meant to be the simplest book on breathing ever written. <laughs> and if people want to access that, they're going to get some of the audio exercises that we use with our partner, Dr. Jose Herrero in clinical settings that we use at our seminars, and they can experience for themselves some of the basics around how breathing can change state. And then they can open up the door. I think they can open up the door to any practice. It was meant to be an on-ramp to say, wait a minute, there are so many people doing amazing stuff, and it all leads to a different outcome. And if we can get a basic sense of the science so that we have a way to stay safe, I mean, you and I can do a whole podcast on breathing at some point and talk about some things that can go right and wrong. So we, we put the book together also kind of as a you know, a primer to say that these are some things you might want to know before you start using breathing in extreme situations. Um, I'll give a quick example. You talk about Wim Hof breathing, right? You know, we, we'd want to have an understanding that when we're doing something like CO2 scrubbing, when I'm taking big inhales and big exhales, I'm scrubbing carbon dioxide from my body. And if I were to jump in cold water or any water at that point, I might not get the urge to breathe because I've scrubbed CO2 levels and CO2 is what drives the urge to take a breath. You might end up with something like shallow water blackout. So this is where the education on understanding how to use the tool becomes a critical necessity. Mm -hmm. But but once you have this, this baseline understanding through a lived experience, like the internet is so noisy, but trying to tell a young person something is hard or anybody, but once they do a breathing exercise and they go, wait a minute, I feel amazing and I feel different in my body and I made that happen and I can always do that. Now you can open up the door. And one thing that, uh, that my partner Lex always shares, I think it's just really valuable and a cool place to maybe, you know, depart from is, well, I grew up in Jersey in, in a rough neighborhood with no archetype for health or fitness. It was never on my radar. I didn't see it as something I was avoiding. I didn't know it was there. And a lot of the young people in our neighborhood who were living in a completely different culture, that there is no sport practice. There's very little physical activity. There's a lot of drivers for that should probably drive stress, anxiety, depression, exhaustion. They don't know that it's there. And when they find out that it's there, they feel like they've opened the door to a new culture. Now you can argue, and I have argued in the past that the fact that fitness is a counterculture is a really um, a deep statement yeah. on where we are right now, but it is a counterculture. And when you recognize right. the people on the other side of that are surfing big waves, you know, they're, they're in saunas, they're in ice baths, they're connecting with each other, they're building companies and nonprofits and organizations. It feels like a real renaissance mm -hmm. in mental and physical and social health. 
when young people find that, they just don't want to go back. They don't want to close the door. Right. So I think if more people follow work like yours and the people that we're talking about in this podcast, it's going to open a door to to a whole new world of possibility and potential. And that's really, really amazing. We'll, we'll leave it off there. I love it. Um, and give us a recap of where folks can find you and your work real quick. So they can jump on Twitter or Instagram at Physiology First. And you can check out the university and other ways to get involved at physiologyfirst.org. Perfect. Simple. Succinct. I love it. Um, appreciate your time again, my friend, today. And um, we're going to sign off. And if uh, you guys made it all the way to the end here, really appreciate you listening. If you can, like, share, subscribe. Uh, again, this is stuff that is definitely going to take a lot of grassroots, I think. Uh, <laughs> uh, it, will. it will take yeah. community-based, yeah, absolutely, community-based education. So, yeah, I think that I would love to get uh, kind of the, these messages, this podcast-type stuff into the hands of a lot of parents that, you know, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely going to push it out to a lot of parents and see what their take on some of this is, especially when they have kids going into the junior high, high school, and even college age uh, that I, I, you know, they're, they're all jumping in my mind. And I'd love to see how the parents respond and how, uh, how again, we can connect with some of those kids and, and, and see if we can. Mm -hmm. And know that, that they can always go to the university. There are different ways to get involved in that and get the resources. So if parents want to know where to find the resources on sleep, on breathing, on mindset, on um, all the things that we talked about on brain function, 21st century neuroscience, they can get them there and they can share them with their kids directly. Yeah. Physiology first pop-up could be you and a little one in a house. It doesn't have right. to be a big thing. Yeah. So if anyone wants to experience the curriculum, they can go check it out. Perfect, man. All right, we'll leave it off there. And I uh, hope everyone's having an awesome day. Stay healthy. I hope this helped you get at least 1% better today. And uh, yeah, let's change the world. No